Colossians 2 is our passage. You're going to want to have a copy of the scriptures open. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 to 19. There is an outline in your bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. I'm always amazed. At this point, I don't know why I'm amazed, but I'm still always amazed when in the providence of God, apart from any planning or intentionality on my part, we come to a passage of scripture in the normal working through a book of the Bible, which is what we normally do on Sunday mornings. We pick a book of scripture, we just take it one passage at a time. And I'm amazed that when in that sort of preaching plan, we come to a passage on a particular Sunday where I say, this is the perfect passage to talk about on that particular Sunday. And this morning is one of those days. Our passage is Colossians 2, verse 16 to 19. This is Reformation Day. I know that you think it's Halloween, but it's actually Reformation Day. And this is a perfect passage to talk about on Reformation Day. And this year it falls on a Sunday, Reformation Sunday. So we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. First, let's talk about the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by Paul to the church in Colossae. It is about the supremacy of Christ. This short book from beginning to end is driving this one drumbeat message home over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is supreme. We saw this back in chapter one. Paul talks about Jesus as Lord of creation. He is the one who created all things and he upholds all of creation. He holds all of creation together. Jesus is the Lord of redemption. He is the one who died to rescue, to save, to redeem his people. He's the Lord of the church, the people of God gathered together and called out of the world. Jesus is Lord of creation, redemption, the church. We've talked about Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 where Paul says, in everything Jesus is preeminent. In everything he is supreme. In everything Jesus is first place. We talked about Colossians chapter 2. Paul uses, the only place he uses this particular grouping and ordering of words, he talks about Christ, Jesus, the Lord. That title, Lord, reminds us that he's supreme. And Paul says this in chapter 2 as an echo of chapter 1. He says, the fullness of deity, the fullness of who God is, is pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. He is literally the God-man, God in human flesh, supreme over all. Colossians 1, he is the creator of the rulers and the authorities, the principalities and the power, these spiritual forces of evil. Some of them have rebelled against God. They've rebelled against their creator. And Colossians 2 says Jesus has disarmed the rebellious rulers and authorities, the principalities and the powers, and he has disarmed them by dying for his people, by dying for our sins on the cross. In all of this, the book is reminding us Jesus is supreme over and over and over again. Now, in Colossae, just like in Odessa, there were challenges to the supremacy of Jesus. Let me mention two quickly. One was Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a constant threat in the early church, especially in this geographic area around Colossae. Historians call the Gnostics purveyors of mystery religions. The word Gnostic literally comes from the Greek word gnosis, that means knowledge. And the Gnostics loosely believed that the key to a successful spiritual life 
was gaining their secret special insider knowledge. Now, believe it or not, in first century Colossae, the Gnostics did not have a Wikipedia page that you could just search up and say, tell me about Gnosticism. In fact, if you wanted to learn about Gnosticism, you had to go to the right people and you had to do the right things and they had this highly intricate system of ceremony and ritual and if you proceeded from one level to the next, over time they would begin to let you in on some of their secrets. But they believed that this secret knowledge was key to being a truly spiritual person. Another danger is what we would call syncretism. Syncretism just means the blending or the mixing of one or more religions. And this was super common in the Greco-Roman world. The the Greco-Roman pantheon. Some of you remember learning this. I think I learned it in seventh grade English. We talked about the Greek gods and goddesses and the Roman gods and goddesses. And they were pretty much the same. They just had different names. And they were more or less all interchangeable. And you could pick this one and not worship this one. Or you could worship all of them. It was a pantheon of deities. And there was a great temptation for the early Christians to think about Jesus as one of their gods, one of their deities, to take a little bit of Greco-Roman paganism and a little bit of this stuff about Jesus and to try to blend those things together and mix them together. It was a danger in the early church. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. You live approximately 2,000 years after this letter was written. This is an old document that we're studying. And this document was not written in English, it was written in Greek, and it was written on the complete other side of the world from where you and I live. But do you know that today, in Odessa, Texas, opposite side of the world, 2,000 years later, these two dangers are still around. Gnosticism and syncretism. They still exist. They're still a threat to the church. Syncretism is a major problem for churches in the United States of America. Churches are tempted to take a little bit of all sorts of things and to mix it with our Christian faith. Some of what we believe about this and what we think about that and our political view this way or that way and to mix it in with our Christian faith. It's a dangerous, dangerous problem, as is Gnosticism. Now look, nobody calls it Gnosticism anymore. You're like, I've never even heard of Gnosticism. What is he talking about Gnosticism being around? Nobody calls it that. But there's plenty of people today who will say to you, Christian books, Christian websites, Christian conferences, Christian radio, they will say to you, Jesus is great. We love Jesus. You like Jesus? We like Jesus? We're all on team Jesus. But then... They will follow that up and say to you, now if you really want to be a faithful Christian and if you really want to live a successful spiritual life as a follower of Jesus, here's something you need to know and be aware of. Sort of a secret insider knowledge that not everyone apparently has access to. This can come in things that you may not know about what it means to be a spiritual person. This can be in things that you may or may not know about health and wellness. This can come about things you may or may not know about political stuff or conspiracy theories, all kinds of stuff. It's all Gnosticism at the root. These two dangers, very real for the church in Colossae, very real for the church in Odessa, Texas. Here's the big idea that grounds us in the truth. Salvation is found in Christ 
alone. Christ alone. Not in Christ plus some of the Greco-Roman pantheon mixed in. Not Christ plus some of the dominant American worldview mixed in. Not in Christ plus some of this secret insider knowledge that you get from someone else or from some other experience mixed in. Salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. So today is October 31st. 2001. It is the 504th anniversary of the day a German monk named Martin Luther took a document that he had written, we call it the 95 Theses, and he went to the church door at All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he took his document and he nailed it to the door of the church in protest against the Roman Catholic Church and the things that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching about how people could be saved. When Luther took this document, you can find it online easily. When he wrote this document and nailed it on the church door, it was the societal equivalent of you posting something on your Facebook page. This is where you would go to post something for everyone to see, and then they could comment and have discussion and debate about whatever it is that you were thinking. He didn't have Facebook. Okay? They didn't have meta. They didn't have any of that kind of stuff. So he had a church door, and he had a document, and he nailed this thing up there. This was not a completely worked out, fully developed statement of Protestant belief. What it was was an objection to what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching about salvation, specifically what the church was teaching about the sale of indulgences, The dominant idea in that day was that if you gave money or did this penance or went through this ceremony or took this pilgrimage, that you could then obtain some sort of indulgence that would help you make it to heaven when you die. And Luther said, this is crazy talk. And he wrote this document objecting to all of this sort of nonsense. And church historians look back on that moment. There was a lot more that had to happen, but they say that was the moment the Protestant Reformation began. You and I are Protestants. Manual Baptist Church is a Protestant church. We stand in the line of Martin Luther and the other reformers in insisting that salvation is not to be found in anything that you do or any amount of money that you give to any particular church. Some of you will remember four years ago on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. We did a series on a Wednesday night. The series was called The Five Solas of the Reformations. 500th anniversary, it was a perfect time to talk about these Reformation themes. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. We went through each of those on a Wednesday night Bible study, and this morning our focus is on that middle one as I've listed them out, the idea that salvation is to be found in Christ alone. That's the big idea of Colossians 2, 16 to 19. If you would like to have eternal life, a relationship with God, if you would like to receive salvation, Paul is telling you, the word of God is telling you, It is to be found in Jesus and only in Jesus. There were threats. There was opposition. 
And we mentioned Gnosticism and syncretism. Let me flesh that out and talk about the examples that Paul mentions here. Challenges to the supremacy of Christ in the church in Colossae. The first one is this, legalism. Legalism is a challenge to the idea that Jesus is supreme and salvation can only be found in Jesus. Legalism. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The key words you need to, to lock in on are food and drink, verse 16, and then festival, new moon, Sabbath, the end of verse 16. What is Paul talking about when he says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you with food, drink, new moon, festival, Sabbath? Some scholars say that what he's talking about is paganism. And it's been proved in the area in and around Colossae that these people worshipped Mem, a lunar deity, a moon god, and Selene, a lunar goddess, a moon goddess. They worshiped a lunar god and goddess in this area, and they had all sorts of feasts and all sorts of festivals based on the lunar calendar. And some Bible scholars say that's what Paul's talking about here. They are going back and they are mixing their Christian faith with the worship of these moon deities. I don't think that's right. I think what Paul's talking about in verse 16 isn't paganism, but it's Old Covenant, Old Testament Jewish ceremonies. And I think there's a lot of clues here that lead us to believe. It's not moon deities he's warning them about. It's Old Covenant, Old Testament Jewish ceremonies. For example, when he talks about, at the very end of verse 16, Sabbaths. Sabbaths. That's a Jewish custom. That's not something that the moon deities ask their people to observe. That's not part of the Greco-Roman tradition. That's a Jewish custom. When Paul talks about food and drink, he's talking about Old Testament dietary laws, the kosher rules about what you could eat and what you could not eat, what was clean food and what was unclean food. When he talks about festivals, new moons, or Sabbath, those three grouped together are found grouped together in the Old Testament to talk about the Jewish calendar of all the feasts and the festivals and the things that they would celebrate throughout the year. And notice what he says in verse 17. All of these things, the food, the drink, the festival, the new moon, the Sabbath, all of these things are a shadow of the thing to come. And the substance belongs to Christ. Paul would not say that about worship of moon deities, that they were shadows of Christ. He would say they're idolatrous. What is a shadow of Christ? It is all of these old covenant laws, all of these Old Testament ceremonies. And the temptation for the people in this church was to say, hey, we've got Jesus, but we want to mix it with this old covenant form of religion. It is essentially legalism. Can I tell you why legalism is so dangerous? Someone who is captive to a, a legalistic mindset will approach you in spiritual conversation and they will say, I love Jesus. And you'll say, well, great. I love Jesus. I guess we're on the same page. 
But then, if you listen carefully, the legalist will say, yeah, I love Jesus, and I know that I need to obey certain rules, laws, do certain things in order for Jesus to love me. That's legalism. That's the trap. They'll approach you and say, hey, hey, I love Jesus. We, we love Jesus. We've sung songs about Jesus all morning long. But the legalist then adds, and we know that we need to do certain things, obey certain things in order for Jesus to love us. They get the entire scheme backwards. We don't obey in order for Jesus to love us. We gladly obey as God's people, as Christians, because God freely loved us in our sin and in our lostness. Legalism is something that you've got to run from. There's a lot of reasons to run from it. Paul gives two reasons that I think are pretty good reasons. Number one, Christians should run from legalism because it results in judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. And Paul brings this up in verse 16. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival, new moon, or a Sabbath. That's the heart of legalism, is judgmentalism. Now, you and I live in a society that thinks anytime anybody makes any judgment about right, wrong, truth, error, that you're being judgy and judgmental. That's not the real world, okay? But there is a sort of judgmentalism that the Bible talks about that these people have fallen into. These people don't care so much about preaching the good news about Jesus as they care about policing everyone else. Are all of you keeping all of the right laws? That's what legalism leads to. It's an obsession with everyone else and whether or not they are keeping all the rules like you are trying to keep the rules. And are they doing better than you or worse than you? Are you forgetting this law? This is nothing new. Jesus had to deal with legalists. In his day, they were called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees went around and told people, if you want God to love you, if you want to be acceptable before God, then you've got to do this, this, and this. Jesus showed up and said, you people have lost your mind. God loves sinners. He's kind and gracious towards sinful people. You don't earn his love. Paul had to deal with the legalists. They were called Judaizers. And basically they were like pariahs following Paul around on his missionary journeys. And Paul would go start a new church and he would preach the gospel. He would move on to the next town and the Judaizers would come in right behind him and they would say, hey, did Paul tell you about Jesus? And they'd say, yeah, we know all about Jesus. It's great. And they'd say, did Paul tell you about all the rules you're supposed to keep? And they'd say, oh, well, he's, he left. I think he left that part out. What, what rules are we supposed to keep? Well, then they start listing all these Old Testament rules. Circumcision, you can't eat bacon, you got to do this, you can't do that, you can't wear clothes that's cotton and polyester mix, you got to keep this festival. You, there's a lot. I can't believe Paul left all this out. You've got to do all these things if you really want to be acceptable before God. You understand these people are still around today. They are still around today in Odessa, Texas. It blows my mind. Some of you have bumped 
walked into these folks, you've rubbed shoulders with these folks. I don't know what the influence originally is in Odessa, but there's a pocket of people in this town more significant than any other place I've ever lived who will literally say to you, I'm all about Jesus. Just don't forget that you got to keep all the Old Testament rules about food and festivals and feasts and all the calendar and all the stuff. you got to do all that stuff. Look, we like Jesus. We don't want to get rid of Jesus. Just know that you've got to do all of this other stuff if you want to be a good Christian. It leads inevitably to judgmentalism. And secondly, here's another reason you ought to run away from it. Christians should run from legalism because Christ fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the law. These legalists ignore what Paul is saying in verse 17 when he says, these are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Why, if you have the substance, would you go back and put your hope in the shadow? Something happened in the world of sports this week that made me think of this passage. There was a football game last week. The Buccaneers played the Bears, and the Buccaneers just destroyed them. And there's a little boy, his name's Noah Rabe, and he was sitting on the front end down in the end zone, and he held this sign up for most of the game. Tom Brady helped me beat brain cancer. And he held this sign up, and they'd show him on TV, and everybody thought, oh, that's nice, little kid, and he gets to come see Tom Brady. Well, some of Tom Brady's teammates during the game told him, hey, there's a kid down there. You ought to at some point go down and talk to him. So at the end of the game, Buccaneers were way ahead. Tom Brady went down, and he talked to this little kid. You notice in the last picture, he had my kind of haircut. In this picture, he's got a hat on. Tom Brady gave him a hat, autographed hat, shook his hand, talked to him, and the little boy was just over the top. I mean, Tom Brady's his hero, and he got to meet him, and he was so excited, and it was this great moment. Now, can you imagine a nine-year-old boy Monday morning in class trying to get that little boy to shut up and listen to your English lesson at school? This kid had to get sent to the corner Monday morning within like five minutes. Noah, quit talking about it. Noah, quit talking about it. What do you think Noah was talking to his buddies about? Do you think that Noah went to school the next Monday morning and said, guys, 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 you won't believe it. I went to a football game. Tom Brady was there. And I got within three feet of his shadow. I mean, the lights were bright and he walked over close and his shadow, like his shadow was, it was right there. I saw Tom Brady's shadow. No nine-year-old boy would say that. He went to school with that hat on and he said, Tom Brady gave me this hat. I saw him and I talked to him and I touched him in real life. He doesn't care about the shadow. I mean, it's Tom Brady's shadow, but he had the substance. That's what Paul's saying here when it comes to Jesus in these old covenant laws and rules. They are a shadow pointing you forward and preparing God's people for the Messiah. But once you have the Messiah, why would you go back and settle for the shadow. I gave you some scripture references you can look up later. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. They were pointing forward to the Messiah. That's me, Jesus said. I fulfilled the law and the prophets. As a couple of examples, I gave you a passage out of Mark and a passage out of the, uh, the book of Acts. Gospel of Mark, book of Acts. Mark 7, Acts 10. 
talking about Old Testament food and drink laws. Jesus has something to say about it. Peter has something to say about it after God told him something about it. And both of those passages say, yeah, that stuff's the shadow. Those old covenant laws were intended to keep God's people distinct and set apart until the Messiah came. But now that the Messiah has come, those things are just the shadow. Like if you had bacon this morning, we don't care. If your birthday's coming up and you say, well, I want to go to Red Lobster, go to Red Lobster. Those old covenant laws are the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Another example is the book of Hebrews. The entirety of the book of Hebrews is saying to God's people, all of the laws about the sacrificial system and the feasts and the festivals and all of that stuff points to Jesus. And guess what? He's come. We don't have to talk about the shadows anymore. We have the substance. So we're not going to rip all those things out of our Bibles. We're not going to be done with the Old Testament like it doesn't matter. But we're not bound to obey those things because they are the shadow and the substance has come. Run, Paul says, from legalism. Run from judgmentalism and run from anybody who doesn't recognize the supremacy of Jesus in fulfilling these old covenant laws. Second challenge to Christ alone is what we would call mysticism. Mysticism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. We'll come back to that word disqualify. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Last year, we reverse engineered the passage. I think it's helpful to reverse engineer this verse, right? We'll come to this idea of being puffed up in a minute, but Paul says there are people in Colossae going on and on with all sorts of details about visions. They've had some sort of visionary experience, some sort of dream, some sort of ecstatic thing where they heard something, they saw something, they experienced something, and it changed sort of everything for them. And they just go on and on with details about it. Paul talks about these visions. He says that they involve the worship of angels. It's not really clear what he's saying in the Greek. It could be one of two things. He could be saying in the vision, they saw the angels worshiping God. They experienced this angelic chorus of praise and worship. Or it could be saying that in this vision, they were called to worship the angels, to worship these lesser spiritual beings. Either one of those could be possible. There's evidence of both of those in ancient Jewish life. There's evidence of both of those in ancient Greco-Roman paganism. Either of those things could be on the right track. But there's worship of angels involved in it. And he says that they insist on asceticism. This is probably the idea. It's not exactly clear. But it's probably the idea that these people are saying, look, if you will fast for X number of days, you'll have this experience. If you will abstain from this and this and this, you'll be more likely to have this sort of vision. But what was at the root of it was a desire for a mystical experience, some sort of spiritual vision, some sort of spiritual dream, some sort of window into the spiritual realm that would change everything for these people. You understand that that is still around today. 
people chasing mystical experiences is still around today. Some of our charismatic brothers and sisters would rather attend a worship service where they're slain in the spirit than spend five minutes studying the word of God. They're looking for an experience. Churches pander to people in saying we have a worship experience at this time and you can come and you can have this experience. That's what people are seeking many times. There's people today who are so obsessed with angels and demons and what they think is spiritual warfare that they give very little attention to the Lord Jesus Christ who is supreme and preeminent. All they want to talk about is all this spiritual warfare mumbo jumbo. They're they're looking for an experience, for some sort of vision or mystical thing that will change their life. Can I tell you where most people in the United States look for this today? It's very subtle. It's very subtle. Self. The dominant worldview of the culture that we live in says that the most real thing in the universe is what you find in yourself. That no one can argue with you or tell you that it's wrong or off track or misguided. And every Disney movie you've ever watched essentially says you need to look in to yourself to find what is true and meaningful and important and valuable. It is a deification of the self and is a mystical turn inward to find whatever is in our hearts and then to try to live that out. It's a very subtle form of mysticism. There's people, here's another example of it, who will say, I like the Bible. I have lots of copies of God's word at home. But what really gets my juices flowing is this devotional book. What really gets me going spiritually is this person who's written this book that said they heard from God. That's like a vicarious mystical experience that people are seeking. Well, this person said they went to heaven. This person said they went to hell. This person said they talked to an angel. This person said that God talked to them. And they're living vicariously through that mystical experience. There are lots of forms of this. And is a dangerous, dangerous thing that God's people ought to run from. Christians should run from mysticism, number one, Paul says, because it results in pride. There's lots of reasons. One reason he lists in verse 18 is that these people are puffed up without reason. They're Gnostics. They think they've had some mystical experience that no one else has had. They have this secret knowledge or insight into something that no one else quite understands and they are puffed up thinking that they have found the key to true spirituality. In all honesty, what they've done is disqualified themselves and disqualified those who listen to them. That's the second reason Christians should run from mysticism because it disconnects us from Jesus. Paul goes into that immediately in verse 19. Don't listen to these people go on in detail about visions. They're puffed up, they're proud, and verse 19, they are not holding fast to the head. That is Christ. They've let go of Jesus, the supreme one, the preeminent one, to chase this mystical experience. They are not holding to the head. To go back up to verse 18, and I told you we would circle back They have disqualified 
themselves. That word disqualify in verse 18 is the word that Paul would have used if he had been talking about an athlete in the ancient games who cheated and got caught. If you want a modern day example of this, you can look at the story of Shikari Richards. She ran in the trials to be a sprinter in the Olympics for the United States. She blew everyone away, super fast. She took her drug test, and the drug test came back and said, well, you've smoked marijuana within a window that's not allowable for people who are going to run in the Olympics. And she said, you're right, I did it. She didn't deny it. She just said, guilty. Now, a lot of people said, that's a dumb rule. You might think that's a dumb rule. Americans like to win at the Olympics, so you might just say, hey, send the fastest people. We don't care what they're doing. But it's the rule. She was disqualified. She didn't get to run. That's the idea. Doesn't just happen now in the 21st century, but it happened in the ancient world, in the games. People would be disqualified for cheating. And Paul says, look, if you chase these mystical visions and dreams and experiences, these people are going to disqualify you from running the race. Now, these people, do you know what they would have said to Paul? They would have said, Paul, we got it from an angel. Paul, an angel was involved in this vision. And you know what Paul would have said? He would have said to the church in Colossae what he told the church in Galatia. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. We've said it before. We'll say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If your pastor stands up and preaches a false gospel, don't listen to him just because he's your pastor. If someone on a Christian radio station gets on and preaches a false gospel, Gnosticism, syncretism, mysticism, legalism, don't listen to them just because they're on Christian radio. Don't listen to them. If an angel from heaven preaches to you a false gospel, don't listen to them. Hold fast to the truth about Jesus Christ, the supreme one, the preeminent one. Now let me just make a confession to you as your pastor. We're like halfway through this study in Colossians. And every time we pick a book of the Bible and we start to move through it, about two months in, depending on the length of the book, but about two months in, happened in Jeremiah, happened in Luke, happened in the Gospel of John, happened in the book of Psalms, about two months into whatever book we're studying, I sit down to prepare a sermon in that office and I lean back and I say to myself, this is just the same stuff you said last week. It's the same stuff over and over and over again. You said this to them last week. How many times are you going to walk in there and ask them to fill out the blank that says Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ? They're not stupid people. They got it. And this little voice in my head starts rolling saying, you can't say the same thing again. You're seriously going to go in there and say the exact same thing again? They've heard it. They know it. They need something better. They need something more. They need you to be a little funnier. They need you to be a little more engaging or whatever. And I'm wrestling with that this week thinking, oh my goodness. 
It was a weird week. I was traveling. I didn't have as much time to prep, and I just thought, I'm just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And I crack open a commentary written by a guy named David Powell, and he says this on this passage, Paul is unashamedly repetitive. Paul just says the same thing over and over and over again to all these churches, over and over and over again. My job is not to be creative or cutesy or funny or to give you any kind of spiritual experience. My job as your pastor, as a preacher of the gospel, is to say this is what God's word says. And if Paul's repetitive, I'm repetitive. Same thing, over and over and over again. We believe the Holy Spirit inspired this book, so maybe the Holy Spirit knew what the Holy Spirit was doing when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to be unashamedly, unapologetically repetitive, saying the same thing over and over and over again. You have got to watch for the legalists. You've got to run away from it. It is toxic. You have got to run from the idea that you must obey and do something in order for God to love you. You will never live up to that standard, and no one in your life will live up to it either. You will be a miserable, judgmental person, and you will miss Jesus who fulfilled all of those shadows pointing forward to him. You've also got to run from mysticism. You've got to run from the temptation to say, I need some experience, I need some feeling. I need some word from heaven. I need God to send an angel to tell me this. I need this special devotion book. I need this special podcast. I need whatever. And you have got to hold fast to Jesus Christ. We run from legalism. We run from mysticism. We run to Jesus. Let's pray together.